take you to a bit like this. Let's sing together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. To be able to see because of God's great grace. It was Mother Teresa who said many years ago that to, to feel unloved and unwanted is the greatest poverty. And she knew something about poverty. But I would add to that, to be loved and yet unaware of that love is the greatest tragedy. It's interesting that no matter who we are, whatever our station is in life, we long to be loved, to, ex to be accepted, and wanted. No one wakes up saying, I can't wait to feel that I don't matter today. We're longing for those people to take us in with warmth and acceptance. It starts out in our family with our parents, and blessed are those who have loving parents. Some don't. And then we search for love and acceptance among our peers and friends, family. God, at some point, if he's out there, does he love me and does he care? We get married in the hopes that somehow this will fill our emptiness, fill uh, our longing to be loved, and sometimes it goes in the exact opposite direction. And then because the marriage isn't working out well, we have kids in hope that that will save the marriage and introduce love to our soul. People do all kinds of crazy things to find acceptance. To know that somehow that they are loved. And yet many people are going through life without the realization that they have been taken in and loved unconditionally. Now we're believers, right? M many of you, most of you, perhaps today in this auditorium, maybe most of you who are watching on live stream, we're believers. And we know that we are loved. John 3.16 actually says, for God so loved the world. But we know that there is his love for everyone, and then those who trust him, they become the recipients of his total love. He loves everyone, but when we believe he draws us by his love, there's a special love. However, to be loved and not realize that God loves us, is the greatest tragedy. And I'm convinced, I don't know how big the problem is, but it's huge. If I would throw a percentage at it, I might say 70 to 80% of believers live without feeling the love of God. And the feeling is based on the fact of Scripture. But the feeling is important. The sense the conviction. 
And the consequences are similar. If you're not loved, you wither. You shrink. You die. And if you are loved and don't know it, you wither and you shrink and you die. And so as I read the scripture, I see that time and time again, God is trying to prove his love to us. And we seem to be so thick-headed that we do not see his amazing grace. Romans 8 says nothing can separate you from the love of God, right? Is that true? Of course it is. It's in scripture. But has that truth grabbed hold of your heart? Of course not. Often because of the way we live. Ignorance keeps it, us from its power. And so I want to turn your attention to an Old Testament book that Pastor Doug read from just a moment ago. It's the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. If you have your Bibles, I hope you will open it up to Zephaniah. If you need a pew Bible, grab one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that pew Bible home and keep it. Send us the money later. No, you don't need to send the money if you need a Bible. Zephaniah, I'm giving you a little more time to find it. It's in the Old Testament near the end, one of the minor prophets. And like all the other minor prophets, there is this mention of Israel's sin and judgment. And then there is the offer of hope coming. So Israel had blown it, indeed. God had called these people to be his own, made them a nation, brought them out of Egypt from their captivity, gave them a promised land, they turned to foreign gods, the gods that were in the land. And then God Almighty gave up his own people to captivity. The northern kingdom first, called Israel, taken into Assyrian captivity, and then the southern kingdom called Judah, which included the city of Jerusalem. They were taken into the Babylonian captivity. And Zephaniah is writing about a judgment that is going to come not only in their day, but ultimately in the last day. He talks about the day, the final day when it's coming. And the sin of Israel. The high-handed, arrogant, bold, proud sin of Israel. God is going to forgive. It's rather amazing. When you look at uh, chapter 3... It starts out with a woe to the nation of Israel. Woe to the city of oppressors, or to the uh, city of Jerusalem, excuse me. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious, defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. So throughout the first two chapters, there's this judgment on the nations, but also on Judah. They're taken captive, and still there is the woe to Jerusalem. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Verse 3, her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. They devastate the city by their wicked greed. Her prophets are arrogant. They're treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. And yet the Lord within her is righteous and he does no wrong. What a contrast. The righteous God and his sinful people. So verse 8 says, there's going to be wrath. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day, for that day, 
I will stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. You say, I thought God never got angry. I thought God was a God of love and not wrath. Well, you thought wrong. God is a God of love, and we're going to see that, but he's also a God of justice and judgment and wrath. Oh, that must just be an Old Testament message. No, read Romans 1. It's very New Testament as well. God never changes. I will pour out my wrath on them and all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. But, <laughs> verse 8, then I will purify, I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. In other words, that city of Jerusalem that had a woe in verse 1 is now going to be reclaimed in verse 9. Look at verse 11. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove them from this city, those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble, who trust in the name of the Lord, the remnant who will do no wrong. So he removes the wrongdoers and he leaves the remnant, remnant in the city. They will speak no lies, no deceit in their mouth. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. What a beautiful sight. So he says in verse 14, and this is where, this is where Pastor Doug began reading, Sing, sing, O daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away your punishment, and he has turned back your enemy. Wow. And I think the question on the lips of many of the Israelites is this, on many of the Hebrews is this, how? How? I'm not worthy. People often feel unloved because they think they don't deserve it. They're knowledgeable about their sin and transgression. And because of their conscience, which might be very sensitive, their shame is ever before them. They confess their sin and that God is faithful to forgive their sin. Somehow that message doesn't translate into the soul of the truly forgiven believer because they still live with the guilt of their sin. We sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And under our breath we say, but I don't believe it. Oh yeah, he loved me and I got saved, but I've made a mess of my life. I've blown it. Well, Israel did too. And God's amazing grace came to them. And he says, I want you to shout aloud and rejoice with all your heart. But I think their response is found in verse 16. Their hands are hanging limp and they're filled with fear. It's though Jerusalem doesn't quite get, how could you forgive so great a sin? And here's the problem with many believers. God loves you and you don't know it. He's forgiven you and you don't live in the light of its power and blessing. So how can I sing and shout and rejoice with all of my heart? Well, verse 15. The Lord, the King of Israel, 
is with you. Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now that is, to me, one amazing verse. It was Warren Worsby who said this is one of the most poignant verses in all Holy Scripture. It was the great commentator Matthew Henry who said, I know not where there is the like, the similar expression of Christ's love to his church unless it's in Solomon chapter 4, verse 9. You have stolen my heart. You've captured my soul, my sister, my bride, You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. And God is captivated by his bride. God has moved deeply in love toward us, his forgiven people. And yet we're ignorant and often unaware. So let me point out two things to you. From this section of scripture. And the first one. One reason we need to shout. And rejoice. With great volume and energy. Is the powerful. Presence of God. The powerful. Presence of God. So we go to verse 15. And it says. The Lord the king of Israel. Is with you. In the powerful. Presence of God. The sovereign king is with you. He was against them. He was fighting against them. But now he will fight for them. As the sovereign ruler, he will guide their government in righteousness and truth. And what a blessing it is to have the powerful presence of God as king with us right now. You and I cannot navigate and face the difficulties of today unless we are confident the king is with us. We're on his side. Right? Don't take sides with human beings who are frail and change as does the weather in Michigan. Trust the king of the universe. Be on his side. The king is with you. That means he's for you. He's teamed up with you. The second powerful presence is your God is with you, verse 17. The Lord your God. And notice in both texts, Yahweh is the king. And Yahweh is your God. The covenant name of God. The one who makes promises and never breaks them. Elohim, the one who creates something out of nothing. And he is the God of amazing power. He is with you. The ruler of the universe and the creator of the universe is on your side. So shout. And then thirdly, the third powerful presence of God is this idea of a mighty Savior. So it says in verse 17, the Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. The Hebrew apparently is in the context of a victorious warrior. He's the one who has fought battles before and will continue to fight. The battle is not ours. It's the Lord's. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6 says, but against principalities and powers. How do we do it? In the armor of God, the victorious warrior. 
So isn't that a wonderful picture? And he is with you as king, and he is with you as God, and he is with you as victor. How then can we be so despondent and so depressed and live like there is no God in the world? But as good as all of that is, the reason why I think I was drawn to this verse this morning is because the second half of the verse shows not just the powerful presence, but the personal presence of God. The personal presence of God, and I think you and I miss this sometimes, often. There is in Scripture the cognitive, the declarative, the creed, the propositional truth, and that's all very important and must be embraced. That's the left brain, but there is much in the Scripture that needs emotional exegesis. Not just with the left brain, but with the right brain. And I know of no portion of scripture that touches me as deeply as this one. With emotional exegesis. For now we have the personal presence of our mighty God. It's interesting that this picture is often referred to like a beautiful bride who's coming to the groom, and the groom rejoices over his bride. Rejoices over her beauty, her ornaments. And there's several people who take that perspective, but I'm more inclined to agree that the better picture here is not one of a bride and groom, but a mother and child, and God is the mother. That this portion of scripture is depicting God as a loving mother who delights in and quiets and sings over her children. Now, indeed, we call God Father, and well, we should, but that does, does not deny the portions of scripture that talk about these wonderful motherly qualities. Isaiah 66, verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, God says, so I will comfort you. And I think that's what's happening right here. Paul is the one who said to the Thessalonians in chapter uh, 2 of 1 Thessalonians, like a nourishing mom, I fed you. I cared for you. It was Jesus who said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, speaking about this very city, the one who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you. How many times would I get, have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings? I wanted to, but you would not behold the judgment now that comes upon you because you have rejected my love. So what is this personal presence? Well, first of all, he takes great delight in you. Isn't that amazing? He takes great delight in you. Here's where the people who are most conscious of sin 
have a tendency to hate themselves and never forgive themselves. Has God forgiven you? You don't have to raise your hand or stand up and shout, but answer in your soul. Has God forgiven you of your sin? If not, call upon Jesus right now and ask him to save you. But the Bible tells us if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that true or not? And does he not say to us their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Those are true things. But I can't forget. I'm a wretched, miserable, inconsistent sinner. I tell God one day I'm going to serve him with all my heart and by noon I failed. And I begin to look in at all my failures and say how could God love a person like this. You grow up with parents who don't love you and you're convinced you are unloving and then you live the rest of your life trying to gain someone's love but when they don't get it you say I don't deserve it anyhow. And you have a husband who abuses you and you say I deserve it. You're a Christian being abused by poor theology. Are you a sinner? Absolutely. Did you blow it today? You're that's true. You're taking it easy on yourself. That was a horrendous sin. What are you going to do? Flee to the cross. That's all you can do. If you stay in your sin, you are on a downward spiral that will end in your destruction. You wither. You die. And many Christians are so small because they see their sins so big and they don't believe the words of scripture if you are a believer and you've asked God to save you he takes great delight in those who repent and believe how so like a mother with a newborn child our oldest child Carrie just had a birthday on Friday and I got some pictures of when Nancy was in labor. She may not have appreciated these, but I love them. A side view of the big stomach. Breathing heavily. A little bit of fear in her eyes as she tried to smile. We were young. We didn't know what we were doing. And I sent those pictures to Carrie. And then the last picture I sent, well, I sent one picture when Nancy really didn't appreciate this one. Fifteen minutes after Carrie was born, I took a picture of him in bed. Boy, does she look wiped out. You've never seen that picture. You probably never will. But then I took a picture that was probably taken the next day. And the smile on my wife's face, looking into that precious day-old baby girl, says volumes. Did you love your children? Do you love your children? Did you delight in them? God delights in you. But I've sinned. Confess. This is all about Jerusalem under God's woe of judgment 
And because of his great grace, he forgave them of their wrongs. And now he tells them, shout. And we don't do enough of that. God right now is looking at you, dear believer, and rejoicing and delighting in you. You see, I can't get that concept in my mind. Get it. Because it is essential for your spiritual health. The second one, that first one is a great attitude. He looks at us with joy and delight. The second one is this idea of peace. He will quiet you with his love. Now, there are a lot of different translations here. Some say he will be silent or quiet in his love. That is, he will not bring up your past wrongs. He will be silent. But I like the translation in, by the way, I'm using the NIV 1984. If that sounds confusing, there was a newer translation in 2011 that uh, changed a few ways the, the, the expressions come out. But I like this one that says, I will quiet you with my love. Isn't that good? Do you need to be calmed? Fears allayed? It's okay. I love you. I love you with a love that will never cease. I love you with a love that is not based on your doing. It's based on what I have done. I've accepted you. You are mine. And now let me quiet you. Again, the picture of a child on its mother's breast. Hmm. I didn't mean to share another personal story, but I'm going to. My second daughter, Kristen, who's actually in another room listening, she's really going to appreciate this. But when she was a little girl, on Thanksgiving Day, we were eating at some friend's house, and she was running around playing, and she tripped and fell on a cast iron bowl that was about this big, and split open her chin. We grabbed her and went to the emergency room in Lancaster at the hospital there, PA. And she was screaming. Nancy was holding her and I was driving. We get to the emergency room. A plastic surgeon is brought in to do the stitching so that uh, the scar will be minimized. And uh, they said, one of you have got to stay in the room. And uh, they chose dad. It was one of the most painful experiences of my life. As they bound her up on a board and told me to quiet her. They tried to numb the place it was hard to do and they sewed that chin. And I was dying inside and she was screaming, stop, stop, stop. When they finished, and they did a great job, we got in the car and went home. And Kristen, in her mother's arms, was quieted from all her fears and fell asleep. Maybe the absence of adrenaline, but it was the overwhelming love of those mother's arms. And that's how God loves you. To bring you into his arms and quiet your fears. That's his love. 
But there's a third one, and this may be the most amazing and even surprising. With his personal presence, there is this praise or singing. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now in verse 14, we were told to sing. And I never thought about this, but when we're singing our praises to God, do you think he joins in? Maybe so. In our lowest moments, when we're having our devotions and our heart is broken, can we hear God singing? The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. I love you. He's singing. By the way, he's got to be good. Right? My singing is so imperfect. We've got fantastic singers here. But think of God singing. From the heart. Deep to ours. He sings over us like a mother. Singing the lullaby over her child. The mother who takes the child to bed every night. And loves to express relation he told us to sing but he's the one who sings and by the way in the Hebrew this is very interesting I think it's the ESV who translates it he will exult over you with loud singing there's a time for quiet singing but he lifts up his voice with great enthusiasm where the delight in us was an attitude the singing over us is an action. And God literally does that. You say, I don't deserve it. Of course you don't. Who do you think you are? But that's grace. He does it nonetheless. And he wants us to enjoy it. This is not an aloof, emotionless commitment that God gives to us. It's a commitment that bursts forth in joyful, divine celebration. And it is loud. Matthew Henry said, The great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. And he is pleased to sing proudly over them. He loves to love you. You've got to take that by faith. I've got to take that by faith. It's true, though, because it's in the Word. How much does he love us? Well, the real answer is in the cross, isn't it? For God's the love of the world that he gave. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? And that's the chapter that says because of the gift of the son that has justified us and we're no longer condemned, we'll never be separated from the love of almighty God. Now, this is crucial stuff because Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 says this. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he'd already talked about love. And he said, follow God's example. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, there it is. Follow God's example. Therefore, as what? You can go ahead and say it. As dearly 
beloved or dearly loved children. Follow God's example to love as dearly beloved children. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering. Now, you cannot walk in the way of love, nor can you love as Christ loved, unless you know you are loved. If you don't know that you are loved, you'll spend all your time and energy trying to find it. When you accept the love of God, then you're free to love. No wonder our ministry is so pitiful and heartless and weak because it's not energized by this. I'm controlled by the love of Christ. I'm convinced that one died. We were all dead and now we live not for ourselves but for the one who died for us and rose again on our behalf. I'm compelled by the love of Christ. He loves me. And because he loves me, I am free to love. And that's why I am thankful for the powerful presence of God and the personal presence of God. I'm thankful for the King, the gracious King, the mighty God, and the victorious warrior. But today especially, I am thankful for his personal presence. He delights over us or in us. He quiets our fears with his love. And he sings over us in great love. I just came across something on YouTube that really has touched my heart. It's a little clip about Bo and Lydia. These are not actually the real people because I don't have permission from the real family to show their pictures. But Bo was born with a weak heart in 2016 in Down syndrome as well. He was placed in the cardiac intensive care unit in Utah and underwent heart surgery. Bo's dad, Caleb, was a musician and begged for weeks. That's the picture I'm not supposed to show you. That's the real thing. We better take that down. Thank you. Um, all copyright stuff. That's the only reason. So now if I get sued, I get sued. But you can go on YouTube and see this. Just look up Bo and Lydia, Down syndrome, and you are my sunshine. Because Caleb the father, who was a musician, begged to take his guitar into the intensive care unit so that their little boy, who was hooked up to all kinds of tubes, Down syndrome, could hear them play. And the song they chose to play was, You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. Caleb survived the surgeries and came out strong, or excuse me, Bo did, finally got home, and they said, you, you can expect that your little boy will probably not speak for at least three years. But Lydia, the 11-year-old sister who had been playing guitar since she was four, decided she would pick up the family song with Bo, and she started playing, You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. Month after month after month. One day she was playing and she said, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And then she paused. 
You make me, and she paused, and Bo said, happy. <laughs> Guy's only, I don't know, two years old, less. This is his first word, happy. When skies are, she paused, and he said, great. She called for her mom, Amanda, to come out. She couldn't believe it. They got the camera, took a clip, put it on Facebook. And this is what you can see on Facebook and YouTube. It was so powerful that ABC News with David Muir did a special on it. I think it was in 2018. And they did the interviews and they showed the clips. And indeed, it was amazing. The music experts say that music fires up the brain. It improves the cognitive motor and speech skills. It's an emotional outlet. And Bo knows about, five, or about 12 words, last I knew, all through music. Music is left brain and a lot of right brain. David Muir, in finishing his little ABC News deal, said this. This is the testimony of the power of love and music and family. And that's a great way to describe Zephaniah 3.17. It shows the power of love. It shows the power of music because God is singing over us. And it shows the power of family. Because the prodigal has returned and God delights in singing over them. You know, sometimes when people say they love you, you're not exactly sure whether they mean it or their motive, right? There was a letter that Jimmy sent to a woman he had broken off a relationship with. He said, words can never express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please forgive me. Please take me back. I can never replace you in my heart. I love you. I love you. I'm yours forever. P.S. Congratulations on winning the state lottery. <laughs> That's a little suspect. But God says, I love you. And he shows it. Remember the little child who used to say, I love you this much? Put their arms out. Remember the, that remember the commercial or whatever it was? And we can rightly say, in a reverent way, that Jesus said, I love you. And he says, this is how much I loved you. He stretched out his arms on a cross. What you and I can say is that God loves us so much. He gave us his son, and he wants us to revel in that love. So we can love others for Jesus' sake. Know that God loves you today. Let's pray. God loves you if you don't know Jesus Christ. And God loves you if you do. Corb's going to lead us in a song.